Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, we give you thanks for this Advent season and especially for the story of John the Baptist who calls us to turn again to you. Open our hearts, we pray, to hear your word. And let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, we begin with a pop quiz today. What season of the church year are we in? Excellent. Not Christmas yet, right? Still Advent. And Advent is such a precious and wonderful season. One of the reasons I love the season so much is that it is a reminder that we're always beginning anew. We're always embarking on a journey that starts today. Advent marks the beginning of a a new year of grace, a, a time when God will once again take on the task of straightening that which is crooked and smoothing that which is rough. And our scripture lessons each Sunday during Advent always have a certain rhythm from year to year. Always on the first Sunday of Advent, our lessons point us, as they did last week, to the return of Christ, to his second coming. And then on this second Sunday of Advent, we always turn back to his first coming by hearing the story of John the Baptist. We hear that story every year on this Sunday. John is, Luke tells us, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, familiar words, words that we hear every year on this Sunday. I don't know about you, but when I hear the same words again and again, year after year, sometimes I kind of tune them out. Do you do that as as well? They kind of go right over my head because I've heard them so many times. And often what I find it helpful to do is to um, try to find out how those words were heard and understood by someone from a very different time or place. And so this year I was uh, looking at a sermon by the 9th century Frankish bishop and theologian, Rabanus. You've probably never heard of him, no reason you should have, he's not that significant. But back in the 9th century, he reads this passage, and the question that he asks is one that I never would have thought of. First he notes that the Greek word translated here, cry out, literally means to shout, to shout, the the voice of one shouting in the wilderness. Well, that's a different view right there, isn't it? To think of John the Baptist shouting in the wilderness. And and then Bishop Rabanus wonders why it is necessary for John to shout. He suggests that ordinarily there are three reasons that people might shout. One is if the person to whom you're speaking is far away at a distance from you. And the second is if that person is deaf. And the third is if you're angry at that person. And Rabanus says all three of those things characterize the human race. First of all, he says, we're far away from God. And that's why John the Baptist has to shout to us. That that is an image that the Bible uses time and time again. We human beings have wandered far from God. 
Jesus uses the image in the beloved parable of the prodigal son, the boy who goes away into, remember what it says? Goes away to a far country. So he's a long ways away. It's an image that often appears in our hymns. Uh, Think of that uh, beloved hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There's a line in there that says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's really us, isn't it? We're prone to wander. Prone to leave the God we love. The image appears sometimes in our prayers. Do you remember the confession found in the morning prayer liturgy of Rite 1, where we admit that we have erred and strayed from thy paths like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. That's the nub of it, isn't it? We follow the devices and desires of our own hearts, and our own hearts lead us astray until one day we wake up and realize that we just don't know where we are anymore. But wherever it is, we're far from God. And of course, that's just why this season is so important. His name shall be called, what? Emmanuel. And what does that mean? God with us. You all need to know the answer to that question. That's our church, you know, Emmanuel, God with us. So when we hear the voice of John the Baptist shouting out in the wilderness, the message is, get ready. You've gotten yourself hopelessly lost. Yes, you have, but help is on the way. God is coming. He will be with you to guide you and bring you home. And then Rabbanus says, we also shout when someone is deaf. Oh, and we human beings are so often deaf to the word of God. Of course, our deafness is often by our own choice, sort of like children who somehow can't seem to hear mom and dad saying, pick up your room or whatever it is. It's it's really more a, a refusal to listen, isn't it? But the effect is the same. When you refuse to listen, you might as well be deaf. You can't hear. No, I once did a biblical word search on the phrase, not listen. That phrase, not listen, appears some hundred times in the Bible. And almost every time it means one simple thing. What do you think it is? It's people not listening to God. Almost every one of those hundred times, that's what it means. People not listening to God. So is it any wonder that God might need to shout to us? And yet the wonderful thing, the incredible thing, the amazing thing about God is that he can shout with great tenderness. It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? We think of shouting as being a harsh and angry word, but when God shouts to us, there's always this undercurrent of tenderness. Some years ago, then Pope Benedict wrote a book about the birth of Jesus Christ, and it it generated some controversy, mostly because the press 
spun it in a particular way, a rather deceptive way. Does that surprise anyone? The headline in CNN's story was, Pope's book on Jesus challenges Christmas traditions. Benedict, the story said, debunks the claim that angels sang at the birth of Jesus. And most of the accounts made Benedict sound like the Grinch who stole Christmas. What the Pope actually wrote is that Luke's gospel tells us that the angels said glory to God in the highest. It doesn't say they sang it. And so for the press, that meant that Benedict was debunking the claim that the angels sang. In fact, what Benedict went on to say in the very next sentence is that Christianity has always understood that the speech of angels is actually song. That the speech of angels is actually song. When God speaks to humankind, whether through angels or through prophets like John the Baptist, it is like music. It is joyful and beautiful and tender. St. John puts it this way, the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of, what is it? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Paul Gerhardt was a 17th century German pastor and hymn writer. Several of his hymns have become quite well known across denominational lines. One of his loveliest hymns, though, is a Christmas hymn that really isn't heard much in the English-speaking world. One of the verses goes like this. Hark a voice from yonder manger, soft and sweet, doth entreat, flee from woe and danger, come and see, from all that grieves you, you are freed, all you need I will surely give you. So John the Baptist shouts in the wilderness, but that shout, for all its superficial harshness, is in the end a tender word. It is a beautiful song entreating us to flee from all that grieves us and to come to Christ. And then Rabanus tells us people shout when they are angry. Anger, of course, is one of the seven deadly sins and anger has been with us since Cain and Abel when Cain was angry that God accepted his brother's sacrifice but not his own. And just as God warned Cain that in his anger sin was crouching at his door, so it is with us. Anger will lead us away from God faster than almost anything else. And as a matter of fact, isn't it true that our anger is often really directed at God? Why did God let this happen? Why doesn't God change this? Is there anyone here who has not entertained those questions, even nursed those questions? 
William Willimon tells about the year his congregation was asked to set up a holiday display at a shopping mall. A committee went to work and developed a display that focused on a line from the Christmas carol, Good Christian Friends Rejoice. It's the line that is sung over and over as the refrain of that carol. Do you remember it? Christ was born for this, Christ was born for this. And in this display, this hymn was played over and over, the response played The refrain played over and over while a movie screen, a video screen, showed scenes of contemporary life, some of them quite traditional holiday scenes, a family decorating a Christmas tree or building a snowman. Other scenes were more sober. They were scenes of hungry children, scenes of riots and violence and warfare and poverty. But all of it, all of it showing Under the rubric, Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. Well, after two days, the mall management asked them to take it down. It was, they said, too depressing. And worse, it was bad for business. Because people don't want to think about things like that at Christmas. People don't want to think about poverty and warfare and violence and hunger. But see... It's because of things like that that Christ came. The anger, the hatred, the violence, the despair that's so much a part of our world and even of our hearts. Christ was born for this. Christ was born for this. Today's second lesson was from Paul's letter to the Philippians. Did you catch it? It's there in the middle of the lesson. This letter was being written by Paul when he was in prison. If ever there was someone who might have been angry at God, it was Paul. God had turned his life around, had set him on this great missionary endeavor, and now here he is in prison. And no doubt he realizes that this is not going to end well for him. But what does he say? I thank my God. I am confident. This is my prayer, that your love may overflow. Where Paul might have been angry, he is calm. Where he might have been in tumult, he is at peace. What has happened in Paul's life, you see, is just what John the Baptist has promised. The crooked made straight. Rough places, plain. It's just what Malachi, that other messenger of God, has promised to refine them like gold and silver. In Paul, the anger and all that goes with that has been purged away, and he is at peace. And that's how it is with us, my brothers and sisters, as we prepare the way of the Lord. Don't you hear that promise in John's cry? In the wilderness, John's shout to us from the wilderness, every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Isaac Watts put the same idea 
in a more familiar way, perhaps, when he wrote, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. And that's the promise. That's the good news. Christ comes to us in the midst of all our faults and failings, in the midst of our anger, in the midst of our despair, our selfishness, our hatred. He comes to us who have wandered far away from God, to us who have wandered among the thorns where sin and sorrow grows. He comes to us who have followed the devices and desires of our own hearts and have tried to shut our ears to his call. He comes to you. He comes to me with that wonderful, sweet, tender promise. You are freed, all you need, I will surely give you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.